knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. This morning we're going to start studying through a new book of the Bible, the Gospel of John. Uh, The Gospel of John is one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's the first book that I actually read from beginning to end all the way through. Uh, And it's one that has had some profound impact in my life personally and in my relationship with Jesus. And uh, I'm sure I'm not the only one that loves the the Gospel of John. You know, many people have been greatly impacted by it. It's actually one of the most uh, well-read and beloved life-changing books uh, in the Bible. Uh, James Boyce wrote this, The Gospel of John has blessed the hearts of God's people through the centuries. It has been called God's love letter to the world. It has probably been the means by which more persons have come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord than any other single portion of Scripture. Now, before we start digging into this amazing gospel, you know, whenever we start a new book of the Bible, I like just to give a little bit of background information just to help us uh, understand more of this gospel that we're going to be looking into. And, you know, as we look at the first thing is the author, you know, it's widely uh, accepted that uh, this gospel was written by John, the disciple of Jesus. And I say it's widely accepted because John does something that's quite unique unique in this. Typically, when you know someone is writing a letter like we just went through Colossians, we saw that Paul makes it very clear that he is the author. He, he writes that. He declares that. But actually, in the Gospel of John, John never refers to himself by name. Not one time in this Gospel is John, the author, going to refer to himself by name. He actually refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John MacArthur wrote this about John's authorship. The absence of any mention of John's name directly is remarkable when one considers the important part played by other named disciples in this gospel. Yet the reoccurring designation of himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, a deliberate avoidance by John of his personal name, reflect his humility and celebrates his relation to his Lord Jesus. No mention of his name was necessary since his original readers clearly understood that he was the gospel's author. Some other things that's interesting to note about John, the the author, he has a brother. His brother's name is James. If you remember years ago when we went through the book of Luke, James and John, they're both disciples of Jesus. Uh, They got the nickname uh, Sons of Thunder, which we're going to see as we go through this gospel why that is. They were both fishermen. Uh, They worked for their dad, Zebedee. Uh, And Jesus comes and he calls both James and John to follow him. And so they leave their business of fishing uh, for fish and they go to start fishing for men with Jesus. And and John was part of the inner circle. Uh, We have the 12 disciples, but there were three disciples that got to experience more things with Jesus that he brought with them. And that was James and John, the brothers, and also Peter. And so those three kind of had this unique experience, a special experience with Jesus, even more so than the other disciples as well. Now, since we're starting a gospel, I want to answer a question that I know I have had many times as a pastor, and maybe some of you are thinking about this this morning, and that is, why are there four gospels? Why not just one gospel that declares the life of Jesus? Why do we need four different gospels dealing with Jesus's life? Well, the reason there are four gospels is because each gospel is focusing on a different aspect of who Jesus 
is. And so in order to get that kind of well-rounded understanding, I wouldn't say complete understanding because I think you need to read Revelation as well in order to get that complete understanding. But you know, to get a well-rounded understanding of Jesus, you need to see these four different aspects that the different gospel writers declare. Matthew... His gospel focuses on Jesus as the Messiah that the Jews were waiting for, and he wrote his gospel specifically to Jews. Matthew's gospel has far more Old Testament references in it than any of the other gospels. Why? Because he's writing to Jews who would be familiar with the Old Testament, but he's also writing to prove Jesus is the Messiah. So there's constant prophecy from the Old Testament declaring, look, Jesus is the one who has fulfilled these things, declaring him to be the Messiah that we have been waiting for. Now, one of the things that Matthew tells us is what Jesus said. The Gospel of Matthew focuses more on the sermons of Jesus than any of the other Gospels. So it's very much focused on the words and what Jesus said. And I think a good verse to kind of sum up the theme of Matthew is Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I've come to destroy the law or prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. These are the words of Jesus, and it's ultimately at the heart of what Matthew is saying is Jesus is the Messiah that came to fulfill the law and fulfill what the prophets said about the Messiah. Now, Mark's gospel looks at Jesus' life from a very different perspective. His focus is on Jesus as a servant. And he wrote to both Jews and to both Gentiles. So his audience was for everyone. And Mark's gospel is one that referenced how Jesus served people far more than any of the other gospels do because that's his main goal. He wants to you know, help us see Jesus as this wonderful, amazing servant. And one of the main things that Mark tells us is what Jesus did. So Matthew's focusing more on what Jesus said. Mark is focusing more on what Jesus did. And so Mark doesn't share very many sermons if you read through it, but you have constant action. All these things that Jesus is doing and serving. And a great verse that sums up the theme of Mark would be Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the ultimate service of Jesus. He came to offer his life for us. Well, Luke's gospel, if you remember that, we went through that a couple years ago. It also focuses on a different aspect of Jesus. It's focusing on Jesus as the perfect man, the sinless man, who is also our Savior. And Luke, being a Gentile, who is also writing to Gentiles, uh, and Luke often uses two terms that you don't really see in the other Gospels, the term Son of Man, focusing more on Jesus' humanity, and also Savior. Only John's Gospel uses that word once. Matthew uh, and Mark don't use it at all. So that term Savior, which we kind of talk so much about, that's really focused on Luke's gospel. And Luke deals with what Jesus felt. So you got Matthew with he spoke, Mark with what he did. Luke really focused so much on his humanity, what he went through, what he felt as he became one of us. And Luke 19.10 is a great theme verse. It says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This verse encompasses everything that Luke's kind of focusing on the Son of Man, Jesus becoming a man like us. But why did he come? To save those who are lost. So Matthew's focus is really Jesus the Messiah, Mark, Jesus the servant, Luke, Jesus the perfect sinless man and Savior. Which brings us now to John, the other gospel, the one that we're going to now start studying through. And John's focus is on Jesus as God. John is also, like Mark, writing to a mixed group. He's writing to both Jews and to Gentiles. And John's gospel has far more references to Jesus being God than any of the other gospels put together. A verse that not only sums up the theme of the gospel of John, but actually clearly reveals why he wrote it. You know, we don't see this in all the letters that we look at the Bible, but it's great to know, is there a verse that not only kind of is the theme, but does the author actually say, this is why I wrote this letter? And John does that for us in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It says this, And truly Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written 
that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Notice what John says. Hey, Jesus did many other signs. He uses this term signs as opposed to miracles. They were miracles, but he's using that term sign because a sign points to something. He's saying Jesus did far more than I am recording in this gospel. Actually, John really only records seven signs of Jesus. And he specifically chooses these signs for a purpose. I've shared this with you. Why? Notice what he tells us. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the ultimate purpose of John's gospel. The things that I have written, these seven signs, we're also going to see seven witnesses that declare Jesus is God. We're going to see seven I am statements of Jesus declaring himself to be God. John is saying all of this is for a purpose so that you can know something very important, that Jesus is God, and that hopefully you'll take the second step of now believing that he is God, and that will enable you to have life in his name. So John's ultimate goal with this gospel is to help people believe that Jesus is who he is, God, and ultimately to be saved from their sins as they do this. You know, Jesus asked the disciples one of the most important questions that really anyone could have posed to them and then have to answer. He asked the disciples, first, who do men say that I am? And they start giving different answers, but that's not the most important question. The most important question, Jesus then turns to them and says, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? That's one of the most important questions that any person on this world's ever going to answer. Who is Jesus? Peter gives a great answer to that question, but that's really what this gospel is all about. John's heart is, I want to reveal to you who Jesus Christ is, so that once you know that, you hopefully will put your belief in him and be saved by him. Believe. If you're going to look at a key word, Typically, most letters, you're going to see something repeated far more than everything else. And it helps you kind of see what the author is really emphasizing the most. And this word believe here for the Gospel of John would definitely be that word. It's the word that's used more than any other word in this Gospel. It's used 98 times. There's only 21 chapters in the Gospel of John. 98 times in 21 chapters is a lot. You see, what John is doing is, hey, I want you to believe, believe, believe in Jesus. That's the heart of what I'm doing in writing this. You know, many people see the gospel of John like a big gospel track. It's actually one of the few books of the Bible that's printed on its own. I'm sure that maybe you have one or have seen that. You know, think about this. You can go to a Christian bookstore right now, and obviously there'll be plenty of Bibles that have all 66 books in them. But then you'll find a few Bibles that maybe it's just the New Testament, and then a few more that maybe it's the New Testament and Psalms and Proverbs there. But then you can also find just the Gospel of John. But you know what? You won't find just the Gospel of Matthew, just the Gospel of Luke, just the Gospel of Mark. You won't find the book of Romans. You won't find Genesis. You won't find any other book that's just isolated by itself and sold on its own. In that way, it's always just combined with the rest of Scripture. Well, why did they do that with John? Why have they isolated that and just sold that? Why? Because John is such an amazing book to bring people to Jesus Christ, to share the gospel message within it. So it's used as like a giant track. You know, we have those little tracks that we give to people. Here, take the whole gospel of John, read through that, and you're going to discover who Jesus is. And that's why it's been done that way. You know, it's believed that more people have accepted the gospel as a result of reading the gospel of John than any other book. And you know, the most quoted verse in the Bible, it comes from the gospel of John. And it's the one that focuses on the great news of the gospel. John 3.16. We're going to get there soon, and it's going to be a great one that we'll dig into. Now, because many people 
tell unbelievers, you know what, if you're going to read any book of the Bible, go start with John. Or a new believer just gets saved and they say, well, where should I start? You know what, start with John. That's a typical answer that is given. And unfortunately, because of that, some people have concluded, oh, well, John is kind of just for new believers. It's just kind of an easy foundational book. And so if you're a new believer, yeah, if you, you should read it. But once you mature, you kind of move beyond John. Well, that's the farthest thing from the truth. You know, John has a wonderful balance. It's definitely a letter that is easily understood by a new believer. Truths that are vital for people to understand, but it's also a letter that has great depth to it that can challenge a very mature believer as well. Alan Redpath wrote this, The gospel of John is shallow enough for a child to wade in and deep enough for an elephant to swim in. So no matter where you're at in your spiritual maturity, you could have just be a brand new believer. You could be walking with Jesus for 40 years. At the end of the day, the book of John is going to be something that's going to challenge and bless you because it is deep and it has many, many amazing truths. Another interesting bit of background information is the uniqueness of John's gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptic gospel. Synoptic just means see together. And when you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it makes sense that you would want to see them together because they're written in kind of the same pattern, in the same way, uh, with the same format. They all are chronological in their approach. They start with the birth of Jesus, and they move chronologically through his life until his death, resurrection, and ascension. And so it's just a logical progression. If you're going to look at someone's life, that makes a lot of sense. Go through it chronologically, okay? But John's different. He doesn't follow the format that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. He does not follow a chronological approach. And if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke and then read John, you're like, wait a second, I thought that happened earlier in Jesus' life. Well, yeah, it did. Because John's not following a chronological approach. He's following a topical approach. He's taking different themes and he's just sharing them, but they're not in chronological order. Uh, and so as we go through this, you'll start to see that. He kind of jumps around to different things and events in the life and ministry of Jesus. But something interesting to note is 92% of the Gospel of John is unique. That means 92% of what we're going to go through, you won't see in Matthew, you won't see in Mark, you won't see in Luke. Luke actually only has 7% of his stuff unique. All the other things that you see is in the other gospel. So John is 92% unique. So for those of you who thought, yeah, you know, a couple years ago we went through Luke, we're just going to have to go through all that stuff again. Actually, only 8% of what we look at will be similar to Luke. 92% of it is going to be all new stuff, and it's going to be good. The discourse is going to be different. Uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the discourse is really more public focusing more on the crowds and what Jesus did with that. But John is more private. And you see a lot of individual interaction between Jesus and individuals, not much public interaction at all. The teaching emphasis is different. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the teaching emphasis is mainly ethical and practical things that Jesus taught and that Jesus did. But John's teaching emphasis is really mainly on who Jesus is. That's his focus. That's really what he draws out as he deals with different things. John shows us who Jesus is by highlighting seven miracles that Jesus did. As I mentioned, there's a lot more, but John says, these are the seven I'm going to do. Six of them are not in any of the other Gospels. So six of these things are new to John, and he reveals them specifically to show that Jesus is God. He's also going to show who Jesus is by having seven witnesses testify to Jesus' deity and he's going to let Jesus testify for himself. There's seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. I'm sure that you've heard many of them. The one that's probably the most common, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's in John. The only Gospel that has the I am statements are John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not have them. And so another unique aspect of this Gospel that is quite wonderful. Now, with many of the books of the Bible that I've taught, I, I've given you an outline. And the outline, you know, is not a necessary thing, but it's just, you know, helpful to kind of see where we're going and where we've been. But as I was going through this, I decided, you know what, I'm not going to do an outline of the Gospel of John because it's really difficult to outline because he jumps around to so many things. And many of the outlines that I was looking at, the different commentators did, is more theme-based 
but we're going to go through this verse by verse. But if you do it theme-based, which it can be great when you look at the seven I am statements, you look at the seven witnesses, you know, you look at the seven signs, the problem is you'll have one sign in chapter one, another sign in chapter four, one I am statement here and there. So you kind of jump all over the place. If you're going to follow the theme, if you're going to go verse by verse, it's kind of a little more difficult. So we'll just highlight the themes as we come to them, but we won't be using uh, an outline for this book. Now, John starts his gospel. We're going about to get into it now, but he starts it in a very unique way with a prologue. Now, most guys, when they start the, the book that they're writing, they'll, they'll give an introduction, but what John is doing here is more than an introduction. It's actually a summary. In the first 18 verses, he's giving us really a summary of all the things that he's going to be touching on, and then the rest of the letter expounds upon those things. And so he's kind of like, here, this is what I'm going to deal with in the rest of the letter, and I'm just going to give you a little bit of each one of these things, and then, boom, I'm going to expound upon it later. And almost all of it is about who Jesus is. And so this is a great prologue in these first 18 verses. Grant Horner wrote this about John's prologue. The prologue of the Gospel of John is profoundly and gloriously theological, and while the suggestion may come to mind that it'd be better to quickly move on to the more simple narrative chapters, especially when presenting this truth to an unbeliever or even an immature Christian, yet this temptation is to be resisted at all costs. If it be agreed that John chapter 1 verse 19 through chapter 12 verse 50 is designed to present Jesus Christ as the personal object of saving faith, then it needs to be appreciated that John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18 intentionally qualifies in elevated term the full dimensions of the same saving person. In other words, before we reach such evangelistic overtures as John 3.16, in which the universal offer of Jesus Christ is plainly described, we need to be clear about who this Jesus Christ is in exact terms. And such a vital explanation is given in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. So what we see here is a vital thing to not just jump through and, you know, oftentimes, oh, introductions, we don't need those. Well, this is more than that, you know, and we really need to dive in here and realize that all that we're seeing is actually going to be expounded upon even more, and we're going to get great insights as we continue through this gospel. Now, I don't think I have time to do justice to all 18 verses this morning, so we're going to look at the first 13 verses, and then we'll move on from there uh, next week. And so let's start with the first two things that John shares with us about Jesus. And that's really the focus of these 13 verses. He's just going to share several things about Jesus Christ. The first two are in verses 1 and 2, which say this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, in these first two verses, notice we see this term, the Word, three times. Now, the Word is speaking of, spoiler alert, Jesus Christ. But you might be asking yourself, well, wait a second, why didn't you say in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God? Why not just use the term Jesus? Why, using the, why did you know, John choose to use this term, the Word? Well, it's a good question if you're thinking that, and God, uh, John had good reason for using this term. Now, this Greek word that's translated, the word is logos. And the Greeks and the Jews, both, when they looked at this word logos, it was full of meaning to them in, in different ways. The Jews saw it in something one way, the Greeks saw it in another, but I want to kind of help you see when they heard that word, what would come to their mind, and it shows why John chose to use this word as he introduces Jesus Christ to his readers. Because remember, he's writing to both groups. He's writing to Jews, He's writing to these Greek Gentiles, and so he's wanting to connect with both of them in this. For the Jews, when they would hear this term or use this term logos, it spoke to them of the Word of God, as we translate it, the Word, but to them it was the Word of God. But even more interesting, even if you look in the book of Exodus and some of the old Jewish translations, when it actually says, when you would read it today, the Word of God, they would just translate it God. 
Because to them, they would often associate the Word of God as God the living Word. Uh, and so for them, when they see this Logos, it spoke to them of God the living Word. And so this would be something very significant for them. They would associate what John's using here with God himself. Now for the Greeks, who, you know, they didn't believe in the God of the Bible, uh, but they were philosophers and they had all sorts of different deep thinkers. When they saw this word logos, they, they put this word and they connected it with the power that puts sense into the world, making the world orderly instead of chaotic. The logos was the power that set the world in perfect order and kept it going in that perfect order. They saw the logos as the ultimate reason that controlled all things. You see, the Greeks at that time understood something that we should today, and sadly some of those who are claiming to be you know, the intellectual people in our society have missed this reality, that they recognize there's so much order, not chaos. There's so much design that we see in the world. There had to be something that created that, something, some kind of power that organized everything with order, that created everything with design. And these Greek philosophers, they, they recognized that, and they concluded the one who's done that, oh, well, he's the logos, the, the, the one with power, the one who, who created, the one who brought order and sense of reason to the world. So what John is doing by referring to Jesus as the Word or the Logos is he's seeking to try and reach out to both Jews and Greeks with a familiar term that they both understood in order to help them connect better to what he's going to share about Jesus Christ. It's if John is saying this, hey, for centuries you have been talking about and thinking about and writing about the Logos. Well, now I am going to declare to you who he is. For you Greeks, you know that there's a designer. You know that someone has put you know, the, this, all these things together in order. Well, let me tell you who that person was. For you Jews, you know there's the, the God, but let me show you that Jesus Christ is that God. And so he's using a term they already understood to help them better grasp what he's about to communicate to them. Now, this didn't surprise us because Jesus did this all the time. Jesus was the master of this, and you see it when he does parables. When Jesus shares parables, what is he doing? He's taking something that his audience is very familiar with. You know, maybe it's a fig tree. Maybe it's a, a millstone. Maybe it's a farmer. You know, and he takes that. He shares something about that, but ultimately he's using that thing that they are familiar with to then teach them a spiritual truth. That's what John's doing. I'm taking something that you're familiar with to help you grasp maybe a little deeper, a little better, what I want to share with you about Jesus Christ. Now, since we don't really connect with Logos. You know, I say that word, you're not like, oh, all these thoughts come to mind. You're like, I never heard that word before in my life, maybe. But, you know, you might not have the same connection as the Jews would or, or the Greeks would. But I do want you at least to recognize when you hear the word, the association that we should have should be Jesus Christ. And I think another great way to, to think about it is how Warren Wearsby describes it. He wrote this. Much as our words reveal to others our hearts and minds, so Jesus Christ is God's word to reveal his heart and his mind to us. He that has seen me has seen the Father. A word <clears throat> is composed of letters, and Jesus Christ is Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. According to Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, Jesus Christ is God's last word to mankind for he is the climax of divine revelation. So Jesus, the word, is the one who's revealing to us who God is. Philip, show us the Father and that's sufficient. Jesus says, have I been with you so long? You don't know me? I and the Father are one. You see me, you see the Father. He is the word. He is the one declaring who God is to us. So hopefully we understand this term logos a little better. Well, now let's see what John connects the word to in these first two verses to see what he's declaring about Jesus. In the beginning was the word. 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, it's interesting to note, if you look at Matthew's gospel, you look at Luke's gospel, both of them start their gospel with a um, human genealogy of Jesus. So they're starting with the lineage of people leading up to Jesus's human physical birth. Matthew records uh, the human genealogy of Jesus through Joseph, and Luke records the human genealogy of Jesus through Mary, and Mark just jumps straight into Jesus' earthly ministry. He just skips the birth altogether, but he still focuses on Jesus as a man in his adulthood, just coming straight into ministry. So you've got two starts, which are the birth, the human birth, the genealogy, and then the adult life. But notice that John starts in a very different place, in a very different place in time as well. He doesn't start with Jesus' human birth or, or his adult life. We're told he starts in the beginning. Now this is interesting because that phrase was pur purposely used by John. And if you're a Bible reader and you hear in the beginning, there's probably a specific passage of scripture that's going to jump into your mind. And I believe that is what John wants to take his readers back to, which is Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we know that from Genesis that before anything was created, there was God. And it was God who created everything. So when John says, in the beginning was the word or, or was Jesus, he's saying back at the beginning, when, when everything was created, Jesus was already there. The idea that the word existed before creation, it existed before even time. What John is revealing here, which he will expound upon more in this letter, is that Jesus is the eternal always existing God. David McLeod wrote this, Mark begins his story of Jesus at Jordan. Matthew and Luke start at Bethlehem. But John goes back to the very beginning of history, even beyond it, as if to say there is only one true perspective in which to see the story. You must see it in the light of eternity. Now, John goes on to say something else that reveals another amazing truth about Jesus. He says, and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. What John is sharing here is a great deep theological truth that in Christian circles we call the Trinity. One God in three persons. You have the Father the Word or the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a vital theological truth. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God in three distinct persons. And let's try to follow John's logic with this statement to see how he's actually alluding to this truth. There's a being known as the Word. This being is God. How do we know? Well, he's eternal. He was there in the beginning. Well, he makes it even more plain. He's God because... I just said it. The word was God. Okay? But there's more to God than just the word because the word was with God. And notice that that with God is so essential. So the word was God, but it's also with God. Why? Because there's one God in three persons. And the word is just one of those. It's the Son. But He's also connected with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And so John is alluding to this wonderful truth of the Trinity. So in these first two verses, John wants us to understand some very deep, important truths about Jesus. First, that he is eternal, and second, that he is the triune God, which he will expound upon more as we go through this gospel. Well, now John's going to share another great truth about Jesus in verse 3, something else we need to know about him. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Once again, we're brought back to what? Genesis 1. We have in the beginning, but in the beginning what? God created the heavens and the earth. Well, now what does John tell us? All things were made or created through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. John wants us to realize Jesus the Word is the creator 
of everything. I think it's interesting when you go back to the creation account, God could have chosen to create things in any fashion that he chose. But you notice what he did? God said, let there be light. And there was. God said, God said, God said. He created everything with his word. And now John is bringing the word, the Logos, Jesus Christ. He was the one who was there, the eternal triune God, creating everything. And nothing was made that he didn't create. And the implication of that as well is, guess what? He's always been. He wasn't created. He's all existent. He is the God of creation. It's another wonderful truth that John's going to expound upon as we go through this gospel about Jesus. So we have him as God, as triune, as creator. But now he's going to share a couple more things about Jesus in verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. You know, here we have two more vital things about Jesus, that he is life and that he is light, which we'll go into in a moment. But I think it's interesting as well, if you read not just Genesis 1-1, but the whole creation account, you also have this idea because what's he create first? He creates light, and then pretty much everything else is life that he's creating. Uh, and so it's amazing that we see this connection here as well, that John is definitely paralleling the Genesis creation account with what we see here in John chapter 1. But first he says, Jesus is life. He's the source of life. He's also the creator of life. But you know what? Jesus is not just the source and the creator He's the one who gives it. He gives life not only physically, but he also gives life spiritually. He's the one who created us to have physical life here on this earth, but he's also the one who's made it possible for us to have spiritual life with him for all eternity in heaven. And he's the one who can change our life here on this earth. You know, so often we think of Jesus as the life giver in the sense of, yes, he was the creator and he can now give us eternal life. But sometimes we miss the fact that, you know what, he wants to change our life here. When we come to know Jesus Christ, the Bible says we are new creations. The whole, the old has passed away. Behold, all things become new. Jesus doesn't just want us to stay the way that we were before that we accepted him. It's not just, all right, you've, you've accepted me and then just wait till heaven. That's when we're really going to be changed. No, he says, no, in this life, I want to change you. I want to make your life different. I want to make your life abundant. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Look at the contrast. You have the enemy. What does he come? Steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, no, I've come to do the opposite. I've come to give life abundantly, not only for eternity, but for this life. That's what I want to do in people. And the sad thing that we fall for is this lie from the enemy that true abundant life, true satisfying life, true fulfilling life is to follow the sinful pleasures of our flesh, to follow the world, to follow the things that the enemy leads us to. Oh, if you just indulge in this, that's what's going to satisfy. That's what's going to give you an abundance of life. That's what's going to be meaningful and fulfilling. No, he's a liar. He's doing this so that you can, he can steal, he can kill, he can destroy. That just brings destruction to your life. You want true abundant life. You got to follow and obey the one that gives it, Jesus Christ. You know, I think it's interesting that John starts this letter telling us Jesus is life. And as we looked at that theme verse of why he wrote it, that's at the end of the letter that you might believe in him and have life. Jesus is the life, and after I tell you all about him, I'm going to conclude with the reality that he's the one who can offer you true life, eternal life. You see, real life, supernatural life, it requires a supernatural source. John's telling us Jesus is that source. He's the only one 
who can bring that to us. William McDonald wrote this, In him was life does not simply mean that he possessed life, but that he was and is and has always been the source of life. The word here includes both physical and spiritual life. When we were born, we received physical life. When we are born again, we receive spiritual life. Both come from him. So first John tells us, hey, Jesus is life, but he's more than that. The second thing he tells us is Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light of men. He is the light that shines in this dark world. The same one that supplies us with life is also the one that supplies us with light. He's the one that guides. He's the one that directs. He's the one that illuminates our life. You know, it's one thing to exist, but quite another thing to know how to. It's one thing just to uh, aimlessly live. It's quite another thing to know how God desires us to live, to know truth, to know purpose, to know the way to heaven. Well, Jesus is the light that guides us. He's the one who directs us. He's the one who reveals how to do that. But you know what? Light also does something else. It exposes darkness. And as Jesus comes into the world, or as we, His light shine in this world, it exposes this world for what it is, sinful. It's seen more clearly. And I'm sure that when you got saved, I know it happened to me. I partied and I hung out with these people who did all simple things that I did as well. And then once I stopped doing that and I wanted to still spend time with them, they didn't want to spend time with me if I wasn't going to party with them. It was like, well, well you're now kind of shining this light that what we're doing is wrong. And, and I don't like that because you're not enjoying it with us. You won't take the drugs anymore. You won't drink anymore. You're not doing this anymore. So you're shining a light that this is wrong and sinful. And, and so get out of here. You make it uncomfortable for us. We want the darkness. We want to do this in the darkness. We don't want the light shining because it exposes it. And that's what Jesus did. But notice what John tells us. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. This Greek word translated comprehend can mean to understand, but it also can mean to overcome. And I think that's interesting because I really think both kind of fit the context of what we see here because the light of this Jesus would not be understood by many. Because notice it says, you know, that there was not comprehended. So, so many people didn't comprehend Jesus, who he was, what he was, God, the Messiah. So that fits definitely with what we see. But there's another aspect of it that it can't be overcome. Jesus, the light, was not overcome by the darkness. Now at the end of the story, right before the resurrection, some people might think, oh my goodness, he was. The darkness overcame him. They crucified him. They ended his life. But as we just celebrated the great resurrection good news, he wasn't overcome by darkness. He overcame the darkness. Since Jesus is the source of life and light, the reality is without him, guess what that implies? You are left with death, in darkness. He's the source of life and light. And so if you have not placed your trust in him, then all you are left with is death and darkness. And you know what? When you look around the world, you look at places that are void of Jesus Places where they have continued to reject the good news of the gospel, reject Jesus Christ. What do you see? You see lots of death and darkness. I mean, there's a lot of places in the world that I'm sure even come to your mind, but you know what? We have it here. There's a lot of places, even in Houston, that you go to that are void of Jesus, that have many people that have rejected him. And what do you see? Lots of death and darkness. That's the sad reality of rejection of Jesus, what it brings to the sinful world. But the good news is, and if you look through church history, and you even just look at the world right now, when there is a group of people or just one individual who chooses to accept the gospel, chooses to accept Jesus, they go from death to life. They go from darkness to light. 
And when you see a whole community do that, it's amazing to watch the transformation. And if you read church history and you read about revival and you see places that were so full of death and darkness and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit moves and people come to know Jesus Christ and there's this huge transformation and you see those who were dead come to life, those who walked in darkness now walking in the light. And it's amazing to see what Jesus and the gospel can do to change lives, to change communities, to change countries. Well, John continues with this thought of Jesus is the light in verses 6 through 9. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Now, as I mentioned, as we did the background information, John is going to bring seven witnesses to really point to Jesus's deity. John uh, the Baptist is the first witness, but we're not going to look at what John says about John the Baptist this morning, because as you'll see, that's the next thing that he's going to deal with. So next week, we're going to be looking in detail about John the Baptist and his witness to Jesus. And so we'll wait till next week to get into more detail about what he says here. But I'll just um, lay the, the stage for us here. So John the Baptist was sent by God. He was sent to go before Jesus to do what? To be a witness of Jesus the light. But the author wants to make real clear, John the Baptist wasn't the light. Jesus was. He was just a witness pointing to the light of Jesus, who is the true light. Now, when John refers to Jesus as the true light, he's saying that Jesus is genuine. He's the real light. He's the ultimate light that the nation of Israel was waiting for, that they should have been ready to accept and receive. But Jesus wasn't just the light to the nation of Israel. He was also a light to every man coming into the world. So Jesus is the light and life provider. But as we're going to finish here in verses 10 through 13, we're going to come to a recognition. Everybody's got to make a choice. What are you going to do with Jesus, the life and light provider? Because John's going to make really clear there's only two choices. Let's see what they are. Verses 10 through 13. He was in the world and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The first choice that we see many people made back in the time of Jesus, and unfortunately, many people are still making this sad choice today, is one, people don't know him, but more significantly, they did not receive him. You know, Charles Spurgeon wrote this. This is a sad verse. He was a stranger to his own house. He was unknown amidst his own handiwork. Men whom he had made, made nothing of him. Think of this. Jesus is the creator of everything. And creator comes to earth. and People don't recognize him. People don't know him. And the ones that should have known him, the ones that should have been very aware of who he is, his own, speaking of the nation of Israel, they should have known. They should have known the prophecies. They should have expected him. They should have been aware of him. But his own did not receive him. Now, this include every Jewish person at that time. There were many who did, but the majority, especially the religious leaders, rejected him. As we know the story, they also crucified him. Warren Wiersbe wrote this, Jesus is the true light, the original of what every other light is a copy. But the Jews were content with the copies. They had Moses and the law, the temple and the sacrifices, but they did not comprehend that these lights pointed to the true light who was the fulfillment, the completion of the Old Testament religion. And this is their problem. The true light came and they were happy with the copies. They didn't accept the light of Jesus, the life-giving Jesus. 
So there's two choices. You can either receive him or you can reject him. Now notice what verses 12 and 13 share of the wonderful truth for those who are willing to receive Jesus Christ. And we'll finish with this. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is one of the greatest verses in the Bible, and it's a wonderful truth. As many includes anyone, doesn't matter your background, how much you've sinned, what you've done, as many as receive Jesus Christ and believe in him, he's going to give them the privilege, the right to become children of God. But notice the right to become a child of God is only given to this group who is willing to believe in Jesus and also to receive him as their Lord and their Savior. But notice verse 13. It tells us what we don't become children of God by. And this is important to understand. Who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So Paul's saying here, there's three ways you do not obtain this wonderful privilege of being a child of God, ultimately being born again into God's family. First, being a child of God is not obtained through descent. It's not of blood. It's not based on your family bloodline. You can't say, well, my parents are Christians, so that makes me one. My grandparents were Christians. They went to church every single week and midweek. Surely that's going to allow me into heaven. No, you have to personally choose to believe, personally choose to receive Jesus. You cannot do it based on someone else's faith, someone else's belief. No matter how closely you are related to them, everyone must choose themselves to make a choice as to what they're going to do with Jesus Christ. Second, being a child of God is not obtained through desire. It is not of the will of the flesh. You can't will your way to being a child of God. A lot of people have the desire. They think, I'm just going to make it happen. I'm going to do it. I'm going to get to God. Well, the good news is you don't have to get to him. He got to you. He did all the work. He came to us. All you got to do is receive what he's done, believe in what he's done. You don't have to try to will your way to him. It doesn't work that way. Third, being a child of God is not obtained through determination. It is not of the will of man. I just got to try hard enough. I just got to do enough good things and then I could become a child of God. No. There's nothing you can do, enough good works. It doesn't work that way. You've got to believe in the work of Jesus. You've got to receive what he has done in order to have that relationship. So it's not dissent. It's not desire. It's not determination. There's only one way that's ever possible. It's of God. He did it. He did all the work. He made it all possible. We just must receive the truth that he is God, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead. We must believe that. We must accept that, receive that, ask for his forgiveness. And the Bible tells us that he will forgive us and make us his children. So in the first 13 verses, John reveals several great things about Jesus that we're going to see him expound upon as we continue through this great gospel. The first thing is that Jesus is the eternal triune God who created everything. Second, that he is life. Third, he is the light. And think about this. Jesus came to this earth to shine his light and to give his life so that we could go from death and darkness to life and light. That's the heart of this gospel. But only those who receive the wonderful blessing are those who receive and believe in what Jesus has done. Let's pray.